So I was thinking about what to talk about today, and um, I had in mind that uh, it's the second Wednesday of the month, and uh, we ter we turned out this morning to be talking really about um, the feelings of contrition that we have when we do something that's not consistent with what really is the natural inclination of our heart. You know, we want so much to be kind. I think that's true about all of us. Um, I don't think it's unique to us here. I think it's the inclination of human beings when they are not confused to take care of each other. I, I just, I think we wouldn't be here as a species unless we had done that. And I, I know that immediately it comes to mind that human beings do terrible things to each other. And I, 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 I am trying very hard to think of that as being uh, contrary to what human beings are meant to do. The, really the result of confusion. This is sort of the end of the talk coming around to the beginning. I, it's so easy these days to assign blame and say this one's the culprit and this one's the villain. And uh, it serves me best if I can remember that ignorance is the culprit and the villain and that uh, the way to change the way the world is is to really teach the truth and see if ignorance can be dispelled in some ways and allow people then to behave in the way that they're built to behave. I like to think that ignorance that leads to a certain set of conditions causes sometimes some grievous things to happen. And I thought we could talk about how that lives in ourselves or how we see that in ourselves and um, whether we see ourselves, if that's true for us, do we recognize in ourselves, I am a compassionate person or, or the inclination of the heart? Can we own anything? Can we say anything about there's an I who is such and such a way? Have you ever been in a group that does consciousness exercises where you sit next to somebody and you say, I am, or someone says, who are you? And then you say, I am, Sylvia. Who are you? I'm a mother. Who are you? And you keep on with who are you? Who are you? See that? Are you really anything or uh, is what you are saying all of the roles in which you see yourself manifesting? Or who is it? Who is the I am? I'll read you a poem. This is written by uh, this is a poem written by an eight-year-old. So it was a school assignment. The name of the poem. Everyone was supposed to. Uh, I'm very proud of it. You'll see why. I, I didn't write it, but next to that, uh, everyone was supposed to write a poem called "I Am." I am a cat who loves to read. I wonder where babies are before they are in their mom's tummy. I hear skeletons walking down the halls. I see my rat eating Cheerios. I want to grow up to be a teacher. I am a cat who loves to read. I pretend to be invisible. I feel happy when I read. I worry that my rat might be lonely. I cry when I do something mean. I am a cat who loves to read. I understand why koalas are endangered. I say recess should be longer. <laughs> I dream that I am a witch. I try not to give up. 
I hope someday I can be a teacher. I am Grace Emma Borstein. <laughs> so I like that poem a lot. You do too, right? What lines do you like? I like one line best of all. Hmm? <laughs> I am Grace Emma Boorstein. That wasn't what I had. It, that's a good line. <laughs> I worry that my cat is lonely. I worry that my rat might be lonely. Yeah. I I just think that is so dear. You know, uh, what should we worry about? Uh, I worry that my rat might be lonely. You know, you have to really. I, I fear that Grace Emma Borstein is sometimes lonely. And so she must know that lonely doesn't feel good. And she, here's her rat. She goes out and comes back, goes to school and comes back. Rat sits in the cage all day, nobody there. She can infer that the rat without companions might feel the way she does. Who knows what rats feel? But that ability in us to impute to other beings that they feel like us. And to think about the range of feelings that come up in us that don't feel good and not to want, and to want for those ungood feelings not to arise in beings that are dear to us. So we worry in advance of that. Worry that my rap might be lonely. There's another line that I like a lot. I cry when I do something mean. I think that's what we do. We feel really badly when we do something mean. And we don't mean to do something mean. And from time to time, we do. Came up this morning in, um, in the small group that did the precept renewal. Somebody said, I, uh, I got so mad uh, in a fight with a friend of mine that I completely lost it. And I said a lot of things that I really regretted having said. And talked about the remorse. This person talked about the remorse that he had felt from having completely lost it. And it was very clear as we talked about that experience that completely losing it is not a volitional act. If we don't decide at this point, I'm now going to completely lose it. You know, completely losing it happens. Somebody else told a story about accidentally losing her balance and the tea in her teacup flying out and hot tea falling on somebody near her. And it seems so clear in hearing these two stories that those events happen because of conditions, you know, that person didn't decide I'm now throwing my tea out on this person. The person, in <laughs> fact, felt terrible that the tea had flown out. But things happen. You lose your, you lose your balance, tea flies out. You lose your composure, words fly out. Mm -hmm. Things happen. Uh, composure is lost. The question is even if there's a you who loses anything or there isn't a you. You know that I always come back again to thinking about how one of the, the, the understanding that underpins all of this is really the Dharma understanding of um, no separate self. It's such a peculiar understanding, that understanding of anatta, when you say there's no one home, really. 
people say it doesn't feel like that to me, you know. Uh, when I, I, I'm fond of telling people that when I began my practice and people would give a Dharma talk on three marks of experience, three characteristics of experience. Three characteristics are, uh, are anicca, dukkha, anatta. Anicca is impermanence, things pass. They don't stay the same. And everybody knows that. Really, I mean, we know that this morning's breakfast happened, yesterday already happened. The change of the, you know, in, into the, the 21st century already happened. Not going to happen again. But still, every time something happens to us in which we're in a new place, say, whoa, things change. First time you get a uh, gray hair, you say, oh, look at that. I didn't have that before. Or that wrinkle. I didn't have that wrinkle last week. Now I'm going to have it the whole rest of my life. Or this condition that I have, or that condition that I have. Or this, um, this moving out of my child, last child to be on their own. Uh, all of a sudden, they say, oh, it's not like it used to be. And we even know that it's going to be not like it used to be. But when it happens, it's surprising. You're going to have this baby in August? Yes. Is it your first baby? No, my second. Okay. <laughs> That's wonderful. How old is your other one? She's four and a half. Oh, excellent. That's very exciting. So it's different in than out. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and once it's out, it's just a whole new world, and you can't imagine it before. You can't remember it before, actually. We can't imagine it not being like now, but... It's always new. I think the mistake that I often make is I keep imagining that it's only very big events that uh, mark my being reborn into the new phase of my life. But if I were really to pay attention to it, I get up every morning and it's a new life. Not the same. Do you remember when Joan was here last week and... Uh, she sang out that wonderful prayer of getting up in the morning. Um, we, I, I loved her rendition, the uh, the translation of the prayer, especially the trans the translation of the prayer that said, "I'm back." You know that that's a very good translation, but really the formal translation is, uh, "I'm grateful that I have my soul restored to me." You know, you fall asleep. You don't know that you're going to get up again into the world again. You're reborn every single morning. When we sat this morning and I said, um, I don't think we're so far from the end of the journey. I think the end of the journey is right here in our own hearts, in our own clarity. And that we're not that far away, maybe a breath away. I find my mind is all confused and all of a sudden I say, oh, your mind's confused. At that moment it's not confused and then I'm back home. I thought, maybe we're just nearer to being home all the time than we think. So we, we're sort of reborn, find ourselves at home. Click three times on the red slippers <laughs> and you'll be back home. Uh, I think about that, but, but I forgot, what does Dorothy say? There's no place like home. There's no place like home. There's no place like home. You click the heels on the magic slippers and you're back. 
One of the things that I've been thinking about a lot is what is it that stands in the way of it being that easy? I'd be able to just click the heels and say, okay, I'm back. Out of the confusion. I think we get so easily confused and startled. And then we get caught up in communal confusion. I remember thinking, remember a little while back we went, I was I was telling you how many people actually saw the the second of the three um, uh, Lord of the Rings. Remember, I remember seeing it and saying to you here. There's it's it's tremendously full of fighting that one. It's extraordinary uh, combat scenes. Um, with sort of medieval catapults and slingshots and flaming torches and boiling oil. And uh, at one point, at one point when these two kingdoms are getting together to launch an offensive, they're all stirred up tremendously. Uh, They say, to arms, and everybody rushes, all the men rush into the armory. And they're all picking up... um, swords and spears and rushing out with them and in a frenzy of whipped up ire and I sat and I watched it and I thought how many people would it take to to stop and say you know (coughs) this sword would make a very good plowshare you know I could just do something better with this than continue on how many would it take to have people say matter of fact That would be much better if we just did that and then tilled some soil and went home and had dinner with our family. In the long run, that would be better, but we get stirred up so much. At what point uh, is there some control over the stir-up? Where do we get to make a difference? You know, they say, as a result of conditions, and the conditions there are the stir-up, war happens. How about the tea flying out? That was conditions that you couldn't do anything about. Somebody jostles you, you lose your balance, tea flies out. But what what are the conditions that can be affected? What are we going to say, Susan? Well, I thought of T.S. Eliot's that we, we shall not cease from exploration. Um, and when we are finished with our exploration, we shall return from the place to mm-hmm. which we came and know it for the first time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think it's like knowing it. I mean, like saying... This is it. I'm in it now. I mean, I think that what it is sometimes is we're in this this perfect place. I mean, this place and we don't recognize it because of you know getting distracted by things. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that that's what home is. Is you know here I am and it's really good. Maybe the it's really good is the key thing. Um, maybe the the thing that would remind us if we were to really dedicate ourselves to paying attention. Is uh, I don't is I I feel good or I'm in pain. Maybe it's just that easy. Is, do I feel good or am I in pain? So it, maybe at that point I could see that even whipped up. Sometimes it seems as if, say, whipped up into the uh, excitement of a war feels energizing. When you think about it, I'm not sure. What do you think? Feel good to be mad. Or vengeful. Feels exciting, doesn't it? 
complicated. What do you think, Edie? I think what it is is that it's a distraction from other feelings that, mm-hmm. for whatever reason, the individual, we collectively, is, think is more painful. Mm-hmm. So that on a, that the momentary rush and excitement of war mm. maybe keeps from thinking other things like, I can't go on mm-hmm. living in this house with using all this gas and having all this electricity. I mean, thinking that collectively, that mm-hmm. something is going to be lost and that there's some fear about that. And that that goes hand in hand with denial of what is true. I mean, that's how I mm-hmm. think of what's happening collectively. That's such an interesting thing to say. You know, the, the, <coughs> that uh, allowing oneself to get caught up into the collective mood rescues uh, rescues a person from having to be with their own personal pain. When you're going to say, I can't go on another day, I remembered, I'm reminded of the fact that, you know, people who keep demographic studies know that there are certain days that there's an average number of people who end their own life every day in the United States. People, unfortunately sometimes can't go on. And the suicide rate falls, has fallen in, in a demonstrably uh, sharp way on days that wars are declared, on days that, uh, the day that John Kennedy was shot. There's a kind of collective movement. You kind of feel bonded together with the whole of the country, caught up in something else, and your own pain in that moment is not as compelling. It's as if you're going to wait till tomorrow. Now I'm part of this whole collective paying attention to something else. It's interesting. And, and I'm thinking, I'm trying to think of this particularly in trying to understand how can we as a culture support the war? Mm-hmm. What is it in the collective psyche that, um, that doesn't want to look at other things? Or what is the fear? the fear that's been generated around 9-11, but my sense is that there's underlying a kind of fear about something that's very wrong. I wonder, Edie is saying, I'll say it out loud, whether there's a collective fear that we, uh, that the culture is responding to by uh, getting caught up in a fervor for war-like behavior, war behavior. I'm wondering, actually, whether it's a collective fear or maybe elaborating on what you said before, an individual fear, that instead of dealing with my little individual fear, I can get involved in a feeling of being part of a collective. There's something very um, compelling about the non-isolation of feeling in a collective, you know, that my personal problems are now nothing compared to the sense of being part of a group and it's hard to be um it's hard to be countercultural you know it's hard to be countercultural it's hard to say i'm going to i'm going to live in this different way because i think this is a way that's going to make me happy even though everyone else is doing it the other way and i would fit in more the other way and what do i how do i figure out what it is I also think it's a it's a very interesting thing for me to watch the way in which 
the mind, when it fills up with a thought, it's as if every other thought gets pushed out of it. I'll give you an example that's quite mundane. You tell me if this doesn't happen to you. And two people who have a very good relationship, maybe people in a coupled relationship or very close friends that have a long relationship, parents and their children. And uh, generally speaking, things are harmonious or good. And then all of a sudden, one person in this relationship does something that really startles and offends the other person. It's the one sore point in their interaction. Usually I, when I teach metta, I say to people, think about someone that you completely, completely love so wholeheartedly that it never comes to mind anything about them that brings up any ruffle in your mind. So very few people can think of anybody in that category. <laughs> uh, and uh, in the category of benefactor in the Buddhist uh, categories, Usually people thought of the Buddha as that. You have to find some absolutely realized being. So we work with that for a while. Think of the Buddha. Think about saints. And then we come to someone who's almost in that category. You say, okay, you're nearest and dearest. So you really love them a lot. But if some magic genie arrived with a magic wand and said, listen, you get one wish, you can just get one thing changed around your person. <laughs> Everything else stays the same. Nobody has any trouble usually thinking <laughs> of that one thing. You know, I love them tremendously. And if they just didn't X, Y, or Z, some particular thing, I'd be really happy. That would be the final. Is that not true? Yeah. Just that one little thing they could fix up. <laughs> huh? Yeah. So then what happens is maybe it's a really sensitive point with you, that one little thing. It would have to be because otherwise it wouldn't bother you as the one little thing. I mean, everybody's got peculiarities. They become difficult if they're a peculiarity that bothers you. So then the person does that and you take it really badly because you know, first of all, it's offensive to you. Second of all, if you elaborate on it, this person knows that that's offensive to me and still did it, thereby proving that they don't care about that I'm offended by it. And the whole thing mushrooms up in a very short time, often to, how can I possibly live with this person another minute? Because if they're going to continue the whole of life to do this offensive thing, which in, and then they become the offensive thing. There's nothing else. There's no mitigating thing about that person. They have now become completely that offensive thing. And tell a few friends, can you believe? When There's a way in which it completely fills up the consciousness and you can't figure out how you could live with them. Is that not true? Or am I the only person who ever does that? Okay. So you get what I'm saying. Then something happens. That person calls and says... Uh, you know, I'm, um, well, let's make up a thing. I'm in the emergency room because uh, someone plowed into me at a stop sign, and I think I'm all right, but I have to wait to get checked out. In that moment, the mind shrinks back down, and around the offensive behavior is all the rest that's really wonderful about that person and why you had them in your life to begin with. Is that not true? 
It's as if you get a swollen head. It swells up with what's the matter with that person. And it, can, it pushes out anything that's redemptive about them. Then when you get startled, and what the startle is, everything is impermanent. might not stay. Because you could die. And all of a sudden, it shrinks down, and the whole person comes back. But why does that happen? You think about it. Turn to the person next to you and tell that person why you think that happened. Ready, go. Find somebody, Ted. Turn around. Two minutes. You tell the person and they'll tell you. Make it up. Figure it out. I'm <laughs> 
So, did you figure it out? Okay. Now we have the benefit. Now we have the benefit of 60, 60 70 people's collective wisdom in, uh, in uh, 15 seconds. Why? Fear of vulnerability. Fear of vulnerability. almost addicted to this feel, this kind of energy that comes when you're, you know, look what that person did to me and, you know, I'll get even or I'll call a lawyer or that whole drama, it, it provides a kind of juice so you don't feel helpless or vulnerable. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's a, it's, and, and we, and, and there's a, Part of that, first of all, it's very, very eye-inspiring. It's all this mm -hmm. ego view expanding, but it's got a certain kind of grip on us. Mm -hmm. Okay, so the uh, the eye, uh, the eye manifesting itself. Also, the fact that it's an energetic experience. Okay, so we'll come back to that too. What else did you do know? What did you teach each other? We forget about our impermanence. Mm -hmm. that, uh, as soon as we, we would think about how all these things are um, passing, mm -hmm. it wouldn't be such a big trauma. Yeah, as soon as we would think about it all passing, it wouldn't be such a big trauma. I, years and years ago, I'm going to come back, don't forget. Years and years ago, a friend of mine told me about her grandmother who had died and uh, her grandmother was very old when she died. Her mother was still living. And she said her mother and her grandmother had not talked in the last 30 years of the grandmother's life. And she, she was with her grandmother when her grandmother was dying. And her grandmother said, do you, re you know, I haven't talked to your mother in 30 years. She said, I know. She said, do you remember what I, we got mad at each other about? And my friend who told me the story said, no, I don't remember. She actually remembered, but she said, no, I don't remember. The grandmother said, neither do I, but I remember that we got angry. It's been a whole life like that. It doesn't even matter. What else did you, yes? I have a feeling about a lot of things, 
sometimes it's a place to attach it, and then it's not yours. Mm -hmm. It's like even with war, you know, there's some people who feel angry about things, and war, yeah, well, God, I stop and we'll go out, and, mm -hmm. you know, and it, it frees you up. So it gives you it, it gives you an excuse for your energy. You don't have to take it on yourself. No, 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 no. Here we go. We got seventy images of what happens. What happened? What else? Yeah. Maybe it's for me at a control issue. I can control things how it's around me, and it's more of my my issues than the other person. Mm-hmm. What else? Yeah. E. Well, Gail and I were talking about this, this image about the shock of uh, the call of someone who's in the hospital. Mm -hmm. And um, a friend of mine just called and was going to visit her sister who's dying of leukemia. And in the moment of that shock, what, what we were talking about was two things. The, the sense of impermanence, this sister mm -hmm. is going to die. And then what Gail said, well, it's, I think it's the love. Mm -hmm. And suddenly in this conversation with my friend, it was very clear to me that the love that the sisters had had as children was the only thing that really mattered. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So when Gail was saying that when we love or even losing love, that love is coming home. Mm -hmm. It's very, it's very interesting that awareness of impermanence. Well, let's go back to the Anicca Dukkha Anatta for a minute, which we started to talk about as the three characteristics. That um, there's, I think, uh, on all one of the things that I, I, I not only learned from my teacher but believe is true, is that there's something different about knowing that the Buddha said these are the three marks of experience that you need to know because they will be liberating to you and thinking about them and actually knowing them. And there's actually a difference between knowing them and knowing them. Mm -hmm. And that, um, and at least in my experience, they are liberating. They're also frightening. That in the very moment of realizing, ah, that's gone, that's not coming back. This is gone. Everything disappears. And what's more, you never know when. You never know when. It has the it has two sides of it. It has the side, first of all, of of being able to say uh, when things are really difficult, this is not going to last. Nothing lasts, so this won't last. People say I'll be I'll be sad forever. Probably not. Maybe even uh, forever, whatever ever is in this lifetime. There will be things that will sadden us to think about for the rest of our lives, but we won't think about them every second. You know, when we're taking a shower, we might not be thinking about them. So in that moment, we not, might not be saddened by it. Or in the minute of hearing a good poem or a piece of music or baking a cake, so the sadness will not be permanent and implacable. It will arise again at different times. And it's tremendously um, strengthening to know that because in myself, at least, I felt less frightened of terrible things. That they didn't necessarily mean that there would be nothing 
but sadness forever and ever. It also did for me, um, I, it, I think it made a, a change for me in terms of since everything is going to pass and I know it, to try to be more awake to what's happening now, not waiting for the holiday that I'm going to have in October because who knows if I'll get there. You know, in the meantime, this is today. Even assuming I'm going to get there, if I were only to depend on the holidays to make me happy or the vacation trips or the going here or the going there, I have to do this day now because I don't know that I'm going to get to have tomorrow. You never know. Nobody knows. I may be here tomorrow, but someone in my circle of people dear to me might not be. It's all so fragile. You just don't know. There's a line from the Dhammapada that says, whoever really understands impermanence ceases to be contentious. I mean, it's way bigger than any of us. Why would we fight for a minute? Why would I spend this moment digging up a fight or cultivating? I do. Not to say that I don't fall into that trap, but if I were wise, why do I go for it? There it is, you know. Rose is saying there's something very seductive about the passion of, uh, of quarrel or the passion of enmity. Maybe we do it because we're bored or we do it because we're frightened. Ted? I always thought of it as the, the function of the ego to maintain continuity mm-hmm. between the past, the present, and the future. Mm-hmm. And when we attach to the ego, then we think of ourselves in terms of a life instead of a series of moments. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think there's something more complex going on with your with your example of, of war and the Lord of the Rings and so on. And I've been, it's kind of interesting because I, I think the answer is actually in the Lord of the Rings. My, my, the class ahead of me in high school was the group that originally popularized it in the United States. So I've read it over and over and over <laughs> you, know, the, you know all the nuances in there and one of the points that keeps getting made over and over by the wise folks in there is that the work was not done in peacetime to prevent the regrowing of the evil which made which is what made the war inevitable and I think there's an analogy to that in the work we do with meditation uh, it, you know, it, it, it's sort of the hard day-by-day day, um, building of the framework and the structure for a peaceful solution, whether it's for yourself or whether it's for the, the country or the society. But if you don't, but that work is not exciting mm-hmm. and charging in the same way. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't have that drama. Mm-hmm. It has that, you know, it's much quieter. And it, it's, it, and it's, it, that gets said over and over in that book. And of course, it doesn't come out in the movie. But that, you know, while men slept and ignored what was going on, mm-hmm. this, or this happened and that happened mm-hmm. and the other thing happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and therefore, at the end, the end when they're being attacked by 10,000 semi human people that all they can do is pull out the swords at that point. See, I'm thinking, Joan, as you're saying that, because I like that construction very much. I'm thinking about whether or not actually it's not as exciting to do the day-to-day work or whether that isn't 
or whether we couldn't challenge that as I couldn't challenge that as well that there's something um, exciting because it's energetic about uh, 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 subduing the flames of passion once they've broken out or whether in fact enough experiences of sublime peace doesn't become more attractive than subduing the, the flames of passion. I'd like to think that, you know, that the, the people that I've met, like Deepama, who said nothing much is happening, just a lot of peacefulness in the mind and a lot of love. You know, I wanted that. That sounded very attractive to me, you know. I didn't, I don't know. I, 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 you know, I, I, because I think it actually is very complex. Who knows about physiology? You know, somebody, oh, said, you know, we have just energy floating around. We look for something to do with it. I, I used to have, um, at one point, my zenith number of cats was four. And uh, they would all sleep out on the patio in the sun. And usually in sets of two, lying next to each other because they kept each other warm that way I suppose it was friendly or whatever cats do but here they'd be two together and two together they'd be lying there very nicely apparently and then all of a sudden for who knows what reason two of them would stand up arch their backs hiss at each other a little bit <laughs> and then lie back down again in the uh, you know, at, at apparently no provocation. So you wonder about sunspots from the moon, so the sun, or you know, the phase of the moon, or what happens to us, or why we. There are all kinds of things in in our own endocrine systems. Do I get up grumpy someday? What happens? I think it's very complicated, which does not in any way take anything away from what you said, because I like that very much about the work that needs to be ongoing to discover that this would be a more fulfilling place to be. That in fact, the, the place of a non-neediness to go do anything, to accomplish something because the heart is sufficient unto itself, to dwell in peace, abide in peace and in love is sufficient unto itself. I, you know, I think that's true. Um, Let's finish the three. Oh, David. Something you just said has just really struck me, and I want to allow it to permeate my mind, which is that I think one of the reasons that I've been so drawn to meditate over such a long period of time is that I think there is some part of me, I, I don't have any kind of firm understanding of it, but I think there is some part of it of, of, of me that is aware in myself mm -hmm. that I am very much, unfortunately, very much like the cat you described that something arises in me. And what I most want, because this is what I seem to recognize as I get older, is I cannot mm -hmm. seem to prevent that from originally happening, mm -hmm. but that I, with enough meditation and enough practice, might be lucky enough to be able to do what your cats do, which is to let it come up, do my little dance, mm -hmm. and then quiet down again. Mm -hmm. And that one of the real problems that I experience in the world is that when I and other people do it, that instead of it quieting down, the other person, or the other being, whatever, gets triggered, <laughs> and they say, well, I can show you, and they'll rise just a little bit higher. Yeah. And then, of course, I absorb that, I say, that's a pretty good show, watch me. Yeah. And before you know it, 
something that began as a slight hissing mm. ends up with slashing out with nails and talons mm. all the tools mm -hmm. that are there that we most hope not to use. Mm -hmm. That we most hope not to use seems to be such the crucial thing that, you know, in our, in our, um, when we are aware really of the inclination of our hearts that we go back to Grace's um, poem, I cry when I do something mean. We don't mean to do that. You know, we really want to live out of that place. We love stories about saints, don't we? Because they, they just, at least I do, anyone. Um, maybe other people find them. I, do you know the story about Mother Teresa? I'm sure I've told you about the film crew that came to film her. At the, My friends, Wes Nisker and Jack Cornfield, were there. This is 20 years ago. They had made an arrangement to go and film her. And uh, when they arrived on the day of the appointment, and was shown into her office or her quarters at the end of the day, she apparently had not been told by her staff that they were coming. That, or she had agreed but didn't know it was that day. And their rendition of it is as the door opened and here come in these 15 Westerners with video cameras at the end of what was a long day, and she not expecting them, is that they could see that her face fell like, uh, and they they watched like in just a few seconds the face fell down and then it picked up again and they did the interview that you know you don't stop being a person the face falls you don't feel like doing it but you do it and i love that story i would love it much better than it, the face didn't fall or that it was all fine to her because then I can't do it, and I can't even inspire to do it. But if I get room for the face to fall, it gives me a place to intend to then pick it up. Yeah. I think the ability to move on from those situations without holding any of the baggage is, like children do it. They can get in their little spats, and whether it's because they didn't eat the right thing or didn't sleep enough, they have their spats, and then they just move on. Yeah. They don't, they don't stay mad at any of their friends. They're, you know... That's exactly, that's such an important point. I watch that, and at some age, the storytelling starts to happen around it. Why did they do that to me? They always pick on me. John doesn't like me. Up to that point, uh, I watched that happen with two grandchildren once at a family party where someone sat down on a certain footstool that the other one wanted. And the other one, probably at three, came and pushed that one off and sat down on it. And then the other one came back and pushed that one off and sat down on it. And it's without malice, you know. It's just, I feel like sitting on this footstool right now, and you're there. But nobody went and said, you know, he's got something about me. You know, they finished with the footstool, and then they did something else. But, the, you know, that when it happens to us, we take it personally as if there's... But my friend bit me. <laughs> I wouldn't let go of it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, see, now let's go from the from the Anicca to the Dukkha, Anicca to the Dukkha to uh, Ana, uh, to Anatta. So we at least cover those three characteristics. I let's go back just to the place where I was saying it's freeing to know that things pass. You don't have to fright, be frightened that you're going to have it forever. Uh, it's freeing, be, it's, it's exciting because you know I better do this moment because this moment is not going to happen again. Uh, it's also scary. I think all of them are somewhat scary because if I realize it's all happening 
we're old before we know it, you know. I'm, you know, it's just constantly amazing to me that 10 minutes ago I was 18. I don't know how that happened. Just amazing to me. And, uh, and you know, I could say, people will say, remember when this happened, remember when that happened. A lot of things happened, but it doesn't feel like a lot of things happened. It feels like 10 minutes ago. Isn't that true for you? Somebody said the other day uh, that the end, the day of, um, wait a minute, I, I can't think of the name of the person. Um, what was his name about? Had a long trial about maybe killing his wife. Um, O.J. Simpson. The, that it was uh, eight years since the end of the O.J. Simpson trial. Feel like eight years? Feel like ten minutes? I mean, eight years. I was in the gym and it was on the on the video. I am still in the same gym, working out, walking on the same treadmill, and I, I'm sure it was yesterday. That when you all of a sudden, whoa, eight years. So they're scary as well, which is maybe one of the reasons that we don't take them in so much. The second of those characteristics is the characteristic of uh, the truth about suffering, that where there's clinging, there is suffering. Where there isn't clinging, there isn't. I mean, it's a tremendously exciting uh, awareness that something comes up, um, Maybe something happens. The tea flies out of the cup. Someone gets hurt by it. There's a moment, uh, or not a moment, several, there's a period of time of feeling, how could I have done that? I should have noticed there was someone behind me. should have been more careful. should have put a lid on the cup. How could I have done a thing like that? Oh, now my head feels hot, worrying about the, I must feel just like she. And wishing so much that one hadn't done it, wishing it were otherwise which is really tension in the mind. And then at some moment, having the awareness, it happened. You know, there's, it just happened. And in the moment of that awareness, the tension of um, beating oneself up, the tension of needing for it not to have happened, really, because we infer a, 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 a culprit to that happening, the tension of needing for it not to have happened falls away, so it happened. And in that moment, the mind is free. And the sense of a liberated mind from a moment before it isn't is so palpable. Do you ever have that happen? Where all of a sudden, there's a line. I remember I said it a few weeks ago, and someone reminded me that it was, in fact, I had the wrong poet. I want to make sure I have the right one this time. Never mind, the line from the ancient mariner, from round his neck so free the albatross fell off and sank like lead into the sea. It is Coleridge, okay. Um, in that moment, the albatross is off, you're free. And the moment before, you weren't. The, the people will say, there was a moment of grace in which I knew I wasn't guilty. And all of a sudden, the whole mind is picked up. So the third of the of the characteristics that we hope to discover is really not so different from either of those other ones. It's just another way of explaining the a, a way of seeing the truth. Is that things happened? Things happen according to conditions 
because this is a completely interconnected, interdependent cosmos. In the world of form, everything happens because everything else happens. And that there's nothing separate and independent to whom things happen or that initiates on its own. That losing it happens when the conditions for losing it arise. That uh, there's no one who loses it. Somebody said, you know, you don't know whether it's the phase of the moon in the cats, sun flares, um, the, the shift in the barometric pressure because the children ate the wrong thing for lunch and their metabolism was wrong because you have PMS or, or menopausal something or whatever it is, that, or a headache. Uh, what are the, that the conditions are present and g- conditions give rise to events and those events give rise to other events. Nothing happens without antecedent causes and nothing happens without producing effects. It's a very interesting point, that point, that there's no one separate who's an agent alone in the world, that everything is connected to everything else. It's very difficult to feel about oneself that there's no one there who owns the story because it feels like there's someone who owns the story. When I first heard these three characteristics from my teachers, I thought to myself, well, they're right about the first two, but they're wrong about the third because there's definitely someone there who owns it, and it is me. And I know it, and I feel it, and don't tell me, and someday they'll get it, that they are wrong. And I'm right. uh, There's something very, even even the parts of me that I like, if, if I were to have a thought, I think thoughts just come up. I think we have a uh, the, the the machine that makes the thoughts, the mechanism that makes the thought, looks looks to me something like a, a popcorn machine in, in in a lobby of uh, it just makes thoughts indiscriminately in all directions. You know, just flings out thoughts and 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 you don't pay much attention to it. You know, you actually don't notice the popcorn. Unless it suddenly made a big blue popcorn in the middle, you know, blow out that popcorn. And I think we do the same thing with the thoughts. We have a barrage of thoughts all day long, and mostly don't pay too much attention to them. We pay attention to the thoughts that delight us, or the ones that really dismay us. How could I have thought a thought like that? And the ones that delight me—I was thinking about a lot yesterday. The the ones that delight me. I'm not so sure that it's a bad thing to be delighted about them because actually the ones you say, oh, look at that, are often the kind of insight thoughts that when you see something in a new way, like you're in, 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 in psychotherapy sometimes, it's called an aha moment where you suddenly say, aha, that's what's going on. That same pattern. I always do things in that same pattern. And I don't have to do that anymore. That pattern got conditioned. It could get unconditioned. I am free. There's an aha moment in, in, in spiritual practice where all of a sudden you realize there's no one who is taking a walk. The, this leg is up, so it comes down. This leg is up, this comes down. The whole body got up because it was tired of sitting or the legs were cramped or 
words came in that said stand up and take a walk in the same way that that when you say to a dog sit the dog doesn't think to himself should I sit I wonder if I should sit wonder if I'll get that treat if I don't sit even that I didn't sit you know words fall on the ear sit down there are habits that happen So in those moments when I think to myself, when I really get it, there's no one there. This is just an amazingly programmed form. It's a great form. It works wonderfully. I mean, no one tells my Krebs cycle to do its Krebs cycle. I mean, it just happens, you know. I, I don't have to give the instructions for it. There's no one who has to give the instructions for digesting. My heart will beat until it's finished beating. And my thought machine will make thoughts until the heart finishes beating. And I impute someone who lives in the middle of that and then is responsible for it all. It's very strange. It's very freeing when I see that. And it's also a little bit demoralizing because I like me so much. You know? I'd like to think that this, uh, because I have such delightful thoughts, there must be some delightful person who lives in there who owns those thoughts. Even if I have an insightful thought, the minute after I say, whoa, that's a, look at that insight. They think that's great. I thought that. I, you know, the, the sense of self jumps right back in. I thought that great thought. It's not so bad, except that it comes back when I, uh, it's a little harder when I think some more ignoble thought, uh, think some, some vengeful, angry, lustful, uh, ill-willed, body, whatever, thought. They think, oh. Why did I think that? It's a good thing that we don't... I, I had a teacher once who said, it's a good thing we don't have our uh, minds hooked up to public address systems <laughs> and people could hear what we were thinking. And the problem is that I hear what I'm thinking and, and that we cringe. Is ah, oh, how could I have thought... Does that not happen to you? How could I have thought that? I should have caught that on the way happening before I thought it, and then I wouldn't have to think about myself. I'm the kind of person who thought that. But suppose I thought to myself, I'm the kind of person who thinks everything. I do. Everyone is. We just, thoughts arise in response to what's happening. And the fa the, for me, the great um, freeing potential is knowing that all kinds of thoughts arise back to back, one on top of each other, like in a whirlpool of thoughts or a landslide of thoughts. And maybe what happens with practice is I get clearer about the uh, practiced habit of choosing the thoughts that lift up the heart. That if I choose the thoughts that say, how could I have thought that? What a terrible person I am. First of all, how could I have thought it? It happened. There wasn't an I who thought it. There isn't an I who's a terrible person for having thought it. Those are two statements built on non-truths. But suppose I, suppose I re really got it, that any more that there isn't an I who went for a walk, there isn't an I who thought that thought. The thought just happened. Just happened. But 
then how about the eye that's going to sort through and choose the thoughts that are uplifting? That's more of the same. Maybe the habit of the mind, maybe there isn't an eye who does that, even, Rose, because I think, okay, we have five minutes to do that. been thinking about that because I actually think there isn't an eye who chooses. How does choosing happen? I think the choosing happens. I think the choosing becomes a, a more and more spontaneous habit. You know, some people tend to choose. I think some people are just maybe born with sweeter minds, you know, than, or not so easily startleable. Everybody's conditioning is different, and everybody has a different startle mechanism. I mean, really, uh, I have uh, enjoyed particular teachers so much for their ability to not be provoked into being, um, not, to, not to get provoked into uh, wrong speech, and I think actually not even into wrong thought, that I've, I've been in, in, in situations where people would say, well, what about the so-and-sos, where, you know, such and such who did this and that, where it would be so easy to fall into saying, yeah, you know, to be able to say, well, you know, they have so many other things about them, and look what else good they've done. And it's been always so, like, uplifting to me to watch that, like a rare bird, to be able to take the opposite. Someone says, here, you want to hit this? You say, no, thanks. I'd rather just carry it for a while. That's so attractive to me not to get lured into jumping on the bandwagon of, of insult. So I think to myself, maybe we get born less startleable. Maybe we get, we get reared in different ways. We get reared by people who either encourage that spirit or are sweeter. And they got that way because they were reared. Nobody's good or bad. They're just... And maybe what happens then is that the habit of um, intending towards sweetness becomes more of a spontaneous habit. So I think it's all, I think that the level of change happens on the level of inclination and tension. That I think our fundamental intention, inclination is to be, is not to make, uh, is not to upset ourselves or anybody else. I think that's our fundamental inclination. I think nobody wants to suffer. I think that's what the Dalai Lama means when he says, nobody wants to suffer. Nobody wants anything but happiness. That when we behave in ways that cause suffering for ourselves and other people, it's, it's because there is confusion about what's going to make us happy. Um, and that if we come back to what Joan says, it really is about uh, doing the day-to-day -day work of cultivating that uh, that heart space of contentment. <coughs> contentment maybe is, is it seems like a bland word. It's like peace, contentment. But it's not bland to me. It it, it I don't think it's I, I don't think it's an abstract feeling. I think peace is what we have when we don't feel we need something. And it's need that's so frightening, any kind of a need, that 
the second noble truth about the source of the cause of suffering is craving. Craving is a, a fancy word for needy. When we don't need, we don't crave. We don't have to go look for something. This is enough. This is sufficient. And I think it's actually the most blissful feeling there is. You know, it's a, it's a strange thing that having taken form, we need to take care of it the whole life. You know, to keep feeding it and bathing it and lying it down and standing it up and exercising it and making sure it maps out its turf and, you know, it doesn't, you know. And then on top of that, that, that its specious ego gets supported enough and massaged enough. It's the strangest thing. And that we still want to do it. I think I'll read you just to close a little piece from, uh, where is it? This is a, a new book called In Buddha's Kitchen, Cooking, Being Cooked, and Other Adventures in a Meditation Center. <laughs> this is called Chickpea to Cook. A chickpea leaps almost over the rim of the pot where it's being boiled. This, by the way, is roomy. A chickpea leaps almost over the rim of the pot where it's being boiled. Why are you doing this to me? The cook knocks him down with a ladle. Don't you try to jump out. You think I'm torturing you. I'm giving you flavor so you can mix with spices and rice and be the lovely vitality of a human being. Remember when you drank rain in the garden? That was for this. Grace first. Sexual pleasure, then a boiling new life begins and the friend has something good to eat. Eventually, the chickpea will say to the cook, boil me some more. Hit me with a skimming spoon. I can't do this by myself. I'm like an elephant that dreams of gardens back in Hindustan and doesn't pay attention to his driver. You're my cook, my driver, my way into existence. I love your cooking. The cook says, I was once like you, fresh from the ground. Then I boiled in time and boiled in the body two fierce boilings. My animal soul grew powerful. I controlled it with practices and boiled some more and boiled once beyond that and became your teacher. Mm. Mm. Scrumptious. Scrumptious. We should have ended with the, with the, uh, with the uh, creamy, what are Krispy Kremes. Fifteen seconds of wishing each other well. Do it with your eyes open. Just look around. Wish everybody well.